Yes. <laughs> and you know what? It's really easy to get discouraged in the season of many. But I want you to know, even when, like David, his son betrayed him, his closest counselor, Ohithophel, betrayed him, even when all of this went on, David put his hope in God. God was his shield. God was his fortress. God is his salvation. I know right now, brothers and sisters, some of you are looking like, how much longer can I survive? Forever. Because God is with you. God will sustain you. Father, I bring to you your sons and daughters today. We've finished a hard year now. And Lord, we're entering into a new year in which people offer very little hope. But you are the hope of our life. Lord, we put our hope in you. Faithful are you who has promised. I bring to you every one of my brothers and sisters this morning that is discouraged and is down. And Father, everybody looks at them and says they're finished. Oh, Father, they haven't got started yet because you are with them. You will never fail them. You will never forsake them. Oh, let your strong right hand lift them up and support them. Let your strong right hand come upon them and lift their heads, Lord. Encourage their hearts, sustain their physical bodies. And Father, as the God of eternal encouragement, I ask that you put your hope, you put your faith, you put your encouragement into the hearts of your people. Sometimes, Father, our faith comes from the word. And sometimes, Father, you just give us the gift of faith. For some of my brothers and sisters today, Lord, they just need you to put faith in them. They just need you to give them a gift of faith. There are others struggling like the father with the little boy demon-possessed. And he said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Father, there are so many of your people today that are in that same situation. They choose to believe, but they're struggling with their unbelief. Lord, just fill their hearts with hope. Fill their hearts with faith. Lord, you gave Abraham, when he walked in obedience, you, you gave him glimpses of the future. <laughs> Lord, let them have glimpses of the future. Let them have encounters with you, Lord, that lets them begin to see a glimpse of the glory that awaits them, a glimpse of the blessing that you have upon their life. And Lord, let that glimpse bring hope. Oh, let it bring hope into their hearts, Father. I thank you for it. Father, I lift to you all of my brothers and sisters that are working in the front lines. Let healing and strength flow into their bodies. Father, they face things and see things we, we can't even imagine. But Lord, strengthen their souls. And I thank you that you, your angels have been given charge concerning them. And Lord, you're going to guard them in all their ways. No pestilence shall come near the temple of God. No pestilence shall come near the homes of your people. We thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Oh, God is good. Now, let's get into the book of Genesis today. Genesis chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Now, you've read the first, you know, couple, first seven chapters already on Saturday and Sunday. But let's get into Genesis 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. All right, so God remembers. God brought judgment on the word, on the earth. But even in the midst of judgment, God remembers the righteous. And God remembers mercy. See, yes, and, and Noah is righteous also. Okay, yeah, I mean, we, we got to admit Noah, is, that's mercy too. But Noah lived a righteous life. He was a preacher. He was a prophet of righteousness, the Bible says, in his generation. And God remembered him. But notice God also remembered all the beasts and all the livestock. So all the undomesticated animals and all the domesticated animals that were with him in the ark. See, sometimes you and I have to understand, God didn't just create man. He created all the animals too. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens were restrained. 
and the waters receded from the earth continually. All right, so this was a process. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. So we're talking almost a half a year. And on the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, I know there are some people who say they found the ark. I don't know. But we know that it did come to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. So again, we see this process. And on the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Wow. So even the mountains were covered by the water. Do you realize this? I mean, you know, Baguio was completely covered by water. Mount Fuji in Japan was covered by water. The Himalayans, the Rockies were covered by water. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark he had made. And he sent forth a raven. Now notice we have a raven first. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up on the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him, to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her in and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And when the dove came back to him in the evening, behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew the waters had subsided from the earth. Have you ever noticed the olive leaf has ever since then been known as a symbol of peace and safety? Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Now notice he removed the covering of the ark. And they had to cover the top also, so all that heavy rain wouldn't flood the ark and sink it. On the second month, in the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, only after the earth had dried out, go out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with them every living thing that is with you, of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the ground went out by families from the ark. They went out in order of their species. Then Noah built an altar, an altar for God. And took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, I want you to notice from the little he had. This offering is sacrifice. I mean, all he has, because he's been given all the flesh of the earth to eat for food. All the flesh of the earth that is left is right there with him. And he gives the first to God. <laughs> sacrifice from the first of the little, as a great principle of sowing, brothers and sisters. Now, he built an altar to the Lord. The first thing Noah wanted to do when he got out of the boat was build a place to worship. I think in today's world, mankind is so consumed with building their own houses that they don't understand the need to build an altar for God in the earth. As we read through the book of Genesis, we're going to see all the altars that were built because people wanted a place where God was worshipped. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, God spoke to himself. I like that. <laughs> God talks to himself. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never again will I strike down every living creature as I have done. Now notice, God says, you know what? Man's heart is not good. Now notice, 
salvation by faith changes hearts. <laughs> There's a little truth that you just got to keep in there, all right? While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall never cease. Now, the seasons we understand. Cold, heat, summer, winter, day and night. We understand that. The, the days and the months, we understand. But seed time and harvest, this deals with work seasons. This deals with sowing seasons. There are seasons that you sow into a business, and then there are seasons when you harvest in the business. There are seasons that we sow seed into our heavenly bank accounts, and then there are seasons that we harvest. So understand, God says, you know, it's not just the, the physical seasons that remain. It's the sowing and reaping seasons, the seed time and harvest seasons. He said, they're going to remain. Now, it amazes me how people want to take this all out and they want to say, you know, when you sow, immediately you have a harvest. It doesn't work like that. There's a seed time. There's a time to sow. And then there's a time for harvest. Every businessman knows that he has to sow. He has to build up his business. He has to invest in the business. He, he works for nothing for several years sometimes before he ever sees a return on his investment. In the same way with our, our seed that we sow into the kingdom of God. There's a sowing season, but there always comes a harvest season. Seed time and harvest will always remain. Now, chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now notice, blessing requires multiplication. Now go back and study Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and you see when God blessed the animals, they were to multiply. When God blessed man, they were to multiply. Whenever God brings blessing, he expects you to multiply. The fear of you and the dread of you shall come upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, and into your hand they will be delivered. All right, so man is feared by creation. Okay, the dread of you. Animals are just naturally afraid. Snakes are naturally afraid. Animals, the creation was naturally afraid of man. And this is even after the fall. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. So now we are no longer vegetarians. Now we are carnivores, all right? We're, herb we're no longer herbivores. We're carnivores. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So, all right. We are no longer required to be vegetarians. We are meat eaters. Now, let, let me just come back here to say something. Come back up to uh, every clean bird. Now, clean bird. You know, have you ever noticed that there are clean birds in the Bible and then there are birds that you were not to eat? Have you ever noticed every fish, every animal, every bird that is called unclean is a scavenger? It's a scavenger. It, it eats what others have killed, or it eats dead carcasses. It, it goes after death. Scavengers. Now, a vulture is a very powerful bird, but it's a scavenger. A vulture can fly with the eagles in the sky, but an eagle will always kick a vulture's butt. Ah, now you got to understand that. There are unclean scavengers in this world who pretend that they are so powerful. But you know what? God's people rise like eagles. We're victorious. It's something you just need to remember there. But you shall not eat flesh with its life in it. That's its blood. We, 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 don't, we don't eat flesh with its life. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. All right? So this is when man is killed. I will from every beast I will require it, and from every man, and from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the blood, for the life of a man. All right. So whether it is an animal or a man, 
that kills man, it is always wrong. Now, God said, I put the fear of you. Lions naturally fear man. Elephants will naturally fear man. Snakes will naturally fear man. You have to understand, that's the way God made this to be. And God said, now, any time a beast kills a human, God said, there's a reckoning I require. And any time a man kills another man, there's a reckoning I require. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Okay? Death penalty. Now, this is, this is long before the, the law of Moses. This is part of the natural law. Why? For God made man in his own image. If you're in Africa or you're, say you're in India and a, a, a tiger kills a person in a village, the men in the village will go out and kill that tiger. Why? Because there's no longer the fear and dread. From that point forward, he will see man as an easy it's an easy meal. So God says, I require a reckoning. Death penalties. Beast and man. And you shall be fruitful and multiply, greatly increase on the earth and multiply it. All right, so the reason we can't have man killed off is because man is to multiply and fill the earth. So this is the reason for the death penalty. Now, please forgive me, but you're going to, get mad at me for some of this, but it needs to be said. I don't understand these millions of abortions that take place every year around the world where you're killing a man. You're, you're taking the life of an innocent who can't defend himself in any way, shape, or form. God will require a reckoning. Now, now please, straight up, you know, there are populations, there are nations in the world right now that their own natural population is going down and they're having to import people from around the world to come live there and do their jobs because they're killing their own people. They're murdering their own people. It's called abortion. Now, the reason we are not to kill human beings is we are to be fruitful and multiply and greatly increase on the earth and multiply on it. Right? This is the reason for the death penalty. This is the reason. Now, God never said that animals were, were to completely populate the earth, but man is. Then God said to Noah and his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you. Okay, so we have the covenant of Noah again discussed. And with you, every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, for it is every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. There'll never be another worldwide flood. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant. All right. So covenants have a promise and covenants have a sign. And this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. So, all right, the Noetic covenant is with Noah and his family. It's with every living creature, and it's for all future generations. So the covenant of Noah is with us today. The covenant of Noah is with the dogs and the cats and the lions and the cheetahs and the chimpanzees and the orangutans and the gorillas and the cockroaches, and the ants, all right? I mean, he said, all of creation can look up and see the sign of this covenant. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant. Again, here's that concept of sign. The sign of the covenant between me and the earth. All right, so the covenant is between God and the earth. I will, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you 
and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God, between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Now, beautiful truth, beautiful truth. Now, when you read the book of Revelation, do you remember that we read that in addition to this covenant in the clouds, every time it rains, there's also a rainbow over the throne of God? God never forgets his covenants. Verse 17, and God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now again, here's this idea of the sign of the covenant. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three sons, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these all the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Now, this is really important. All the people of the earth were dispersed. You and I are descendants from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We all go trace our ancestry back to Noah. Okay, that's just reality. Fine, finality. Now, people come to me and they say, well, why do people look different? Why do we have people that are black? And why do we have people that are Asian? Why do we have people that are white? Why do we have people with slanted eyes? Why do we have people with big noses? Why do we have people that are called bow? You know, I read a really, I didn't read it. I watched a really interesting thing one day on the origins of man. It was done by a, a Christian geneticist. And he basically takes the earth and he says, all right, if these are the nations of the earth, he said, basically everybody started right, right here. And then they, they, they swept around the world. And he said, basically, what we see in the book of Genesis is what, what geneticists who are secular also say, only uh, they, they take the origins down to Africa. We take the origins to Mount Ararat. He said, but all of us the same. You say, well, why do people look different, Pastor, if we all descend from Noah? Well, as each of these groups went out, there's inbreeding. Now, remember, if you've studied anything about genetics, you know, you are the product of the genes of your mother and father, correct? Now, when you have a small group of people and then they are the product of their fathers and they are the fathers and mothers and their grandparents, okay? So if you've got genetic inbreeding taking place and that that's really what it is and everybody hates that word inbreeding, but that's what happens when you have a small human race, there's, there's inbreeding that takes place. And so certain traits, colors of skin, lack of color, lack of pigmentation in skin. Forgive me, white people are just missing some genes that, that cause skin to be pigmented, all right? Probably, they say, everybody looked, to be blunt, Filipino. People were more the color of a Pinoy. If you wonder what Adam and Eve looked like, they probably looked more Pinoy. And then genetic mutations caused white and genetic mutations caused black. Inbreeding with genetic mutations cause small noses, big noses, big ears, small ears, slanted eyes, round eyes, whatever. But everybody comes back to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. All right, so please, this, this prejudice that we see today, it's just, it's just ridiculous. We all, if you take our skin off, we all look alike. All right. Noah became a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. Now, isn't that interesting? He became, he began to be a man of the soil. He, he wasn't before. Now he's a man of the soil. And he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So he's laying there naked. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Hmm. So Ham tells Shem and Japheth. Those are his two brothers. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. Then Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. 
he saw his father's nakedness. Now, nakedness here isn't sinfulness. He saw his humanity. That's, you know, he, he, he shamed his father. Now, we'll get into this more tomorrow, probably. But pick it up here. And he said, cursed be Canaan. Now, this is one of my big question marks in the Bible, all right? Cursed be Canaan. Why? Ham did it. Ham did it. Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and that Canaan be his servant. All right, so here's Canaan. Canaan is going to be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So here's one of the big question marks I have in my Bible. Why did the son of Canaan get punished for what his father had done? Now, I've read a lot of stuff on this. Because it's been a question mark in my mind for a long time. And I'll tell you why it's a question mark. Because people use it against the people of Africa. And they, they say that, you know, the people of Africa, da 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 okay. And, and I, I've, I've hated it all of my life. I remember as a, a young man starting to attend church, and I listened to a guy use this whole sermon and, and preach the most bigoted racial thing I'd ever heard in my life. And I, I never went back to that church. I thought, how could anybody stand up and say things like that? It's their, it's their biblical proof texting for prejudice against the people of Africa. But, you know, I look at all of this and I go, I don't understand. Now, one day, maybe God will give me revelation. But to this point, I've never seen an answer. I've, I've heard people talk about it. I've heard people say that actually what happened is that, uh, you know, no, I won't even get into that because it's too speculative. I've heard all kinds of things, but it's Ham that did it, and his son suffers for it. That's a hard thought. All right, let's open up our hearts and spend some more time in worship.
New Testament passage today picks up in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew. So we need to understand Jesus avoided needless conflict. You know, brothers and sisters, there's a lot of conflict we just don't need to be involved in. Now, when I was a boy, I was not a very nice boy. And I never met a fight that I didn't get in the middle of. But when I got sent to live with my, my dad, my dad began to teach me a little lesson. He said, David, you don't need to pick up every stone that's thrown at you. And you don't need to pick up every stick that's, that's used against you. He said, David, it takes two people to make a fight. And you've often heard me say that. It takes two people to make a fight. So, you know, Jesus withdrew. Now, was Jesus in the right? Yes. Did Jesus do anything wrong? No. Were these people who killed John all in the wrong? Yes. So why did Jesus withdraw? Because there's nothing that could be accomplished. Now, now young men especially, this, this is hard for you, all right? Because, you know, you want to be macho. But young men, you, you, you've got to understand, there are some fights that aren't worth fighting. Withdrawing doesn't mean that you're wrong. And withdrawing doesn't mean that you're a coward. Jesus is not a coward. I mean, he dies on the cross. Goodness gracious, you talk about taking punishment of our sins. So some of you young men just need to back up a little bit and realize, you know what? Unless it's going to really accomplish something, there's no need to get in a fight, even when you're right. <laughs> That's so hard for young men. Okay, I know, I know. It was hard for me too. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. All right, so he lived in Capernaum by the sea. Maybe this is one of the reasons I like going to Capernaum so much. He lived there. He, he didn't just visit there. Every place you walk in that ancient Capernaum, his footsteps had touched. That, that little village by the sea, every place you walk, his footsteps would have touched. Now, I don't think there's anything spiritual about that but it just allows me to understand he lived here. He lived here. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, these are two of the tribes of Israel. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, you know, part of this idea of this, this region and the shadow of death is part of the reason, not all of it, part of the reason is that this is the Sea of Galilee, all right? The S of G. You're going to find the, the villages that Jesus was hanging out in is over here. But you're going to find on this side, this is the pagan side of the Sea of Galilee. So, under the shadow of death, this is where they raised the pigs. This was the pagan side of the Sea of Galilee. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, the message of Jesus is repentance. And the reason... For repentance, God's authority is available to change you. Now, brothers and sisters, you, you've got to get a hold of this truth. The message of repentance is not just a hellfire and brimstone message. It's a message of hope. It's a message of hope because the kingdom of heaven, the authority of God, this is the authority of God. The authority of God is at hand. It's, it's available. Now, to repent where there's no authority to set you free, to repent where there's no authority of heaven to change your life, that's just a message of frustration. But when Jesus preached repentance, it was a message of hope because the authority of God is there to set you free. When, when you and I preach a message of repentance today, it's a message of tremendous hope for people because they can be set free from alcohol. 
They can be set free from sexual immorality. They can be set free from the lying, the stealing, the deceiving, all the things that, that bring such guilt into the people's lives. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, this is not first encounter with Jesus. Okay, we, we see multiple encounters with Jesus before this. But this is their calling. He said, follow me and I will make you. I will train. I will develop. And immediately, all right, here's the response to the call. The response to the call is immediately. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. So you leave your current lifestyle of income and you follow Jesus. You say, well, how are they going to eat? By faith. They have to learn. Part of becoming a man or a woman of God is learning a life of faith. Now, th this is why it's difficult for little spoiled rich kids to, to become a preacher. Ooh, don't get mad at me when I say things like that. But it's so true. Because they don't want to learn the life of faith. Now, Paul had been a wealthy man, but he had to learn a life of faith. So he said, listen, I know how to abound. And he said, I also know how to have nothing. But, but these men had to leave their nets, leave their sources of income and follow Jesus. And it was an immediate response to the call. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the sons of Debedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately, now notice again, immediately, okay? They left the boat, that's their family business. They left their father, that's their family, and they followed Jesus. So here's the three-fold response to the call. One. You leave the business, your source of income, you leave the family, and you follow Jesus. That's the threefold response to the call. And you know, when you try to, for compassion's sake, when you try to negate this response, the easier you make it, the weaker the preachers become. Now, I'll just leave that one alone. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. Notice, not his synagogues. Now, now here's something that you got to get a hold of with Jesus. The synagogues were created by man in the intertestamental period. That's the period between Malachi and Matthew. This is the intertestamental period. Now, in that intertestamental period, God was not speaking to the people of Israel. There was no open revelation of God. Not from Malachi until John the Baptist, there's nothing. So in that period, they developed the synagogue system. It has nothing to do with the temple. They developed the synagogue system of worship. So he went through all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues. Not, not, not his synagogue. Their synagogues. And proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, here we begin to get into the ministry of Jesus. Now, this is fascinating. What was the ministry of Jesus' life? Number one, he traveled. Number two, he taught. Number three, he preached the gospel of the kingdom. Number four, he healed every disease and every affliction among the people. Number five, his fame spread. Number six, they brought him the sick and those afflicted with diseases and pains. And seven, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, the paralytics, and he healed them. Now, that's the ministry of Jesus. If, if you want to know what it was like to have Jesus minister in your village or your barrio, he would come in, he would go to your synagogue, not his, he never claimed ownership of the synagogues. He would preach the gospel. He'd heal every disease and every affliction. 
He became quite famous. Everybody came to him, and because they heard he was a healer, they'd bring all the sick to him. They'd bring all the demon-possessed to him. They'd bring everybody who was paralyzed and having a seizure to him, and he'd heal them. And great crowds followed him. Now, you know, great crowds followed him. So Jesus, he wasn't walking around by himself. Great crowds followed him from Galilee, from the Decapolis, that's the region of the ten cities. Deca means ten. And remember we showed you earlier this Sea of Galilee, well, this whole area like that, that would be the Decapolis, all right? Part of the Jordan River Valley. Bashan would have been part of the Decapolis, all right? People followed him from Galilee, the region of the ten cities, from Jerusalem, from Judea, and from beyond the Jordan, okay? That would be what we would call today uh, the Jordan area, okay? The, er the, the nation of Jordan. So follow him from beyond the Jordan. Great crowds followed him in the early days of his ministry. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, okay? Response to crowds. He went up on the mountain and sat down, and his disciples came to him. Now, there's a difference. Notice the crowd, disciples. There is a difference. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. When people sit around and just make up lies about you, he said, don't, don't be kawawa, consider yourself blessed. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now notice, he's speaking to the disciples. Okay, he's speaking. He's not speaking now to the crowd. He's speaking to the disciples. All of this is for his disciples, for people who, who weren't just there for the miracles. They weren't just there for the healings. They weren't just there to see the demons cast out. These are the people who were students, all right? Disciple literally means students. The people who were really with him to learn. He teaches them this. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You, the disciples, not the crowds, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the people's feet. Say, hey, listen, disciples, my goodness, you've you got to keep your saltiness. He said, you, again, remember, we are talking about the disciples. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. Revelation 1, local church. And it gives light to all in the house. Okay, you, you say that you are a believer. You're a disciple of Jesus, and you are, then you are a lamp then Jesus has put you on a stand. Jesus has put you in a local church. And if you're not in a local church or you're off rebelling and running away from it, you, you jumped off your light stand. <laughs> you, folks, sometimes we just need to get back to the scripture and understand the beauty and the supremacy of a local church that Jesus has joined you to. In the same way, let your light shine before others. In what way? On a stand, not off doing your own little thing. On a stand, let your light shine before others so that there's purpose. 
they may see, number one, your good works, and number two, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right, he says, so listen. You function on the lampstand as a lamp with the other lamps. You give light to the whole house, okay? You, you shine with others before others. And people will see your good works because you've done them together. And they'll give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Beautiful truth. All right. One more passage to get into today. And that's the book of Proverbs. Chapter 1, verse 24. So Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24. A little bit of wisdom before we go today. This is a passage that a relative of mine read and cried out and called me into the room with them because they weren't living right for God. He said, because I have called and you refuse to listen, stretched out my hand and no one is heeded. Because you have ignored my counsel and would have none of my reproof. Now notice wrong decisions wrong decisions and walk with god number 1 you refuse to listen number 2 you paid no attention number 3 you ignored god number 4 you ignored correction four wrong decisions God said, because of these four wrong decisions you have made, he said, I will laugh at your calamity. He said, I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind and when distress and anguish comes upon you, he said, then you will call upon me. He said, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. God's attitude when we ignore him. Now, is God just being mean? No. God is allowing us to eat the fruit of our decisions. He said, listen, guys, I tried to keep you out of this trouble, and you wouldn't pay any attention to me. I told you, if you walk through that door, you're going to get hit in the head with a two-by-four, and you didn't pay any attention to me. So you know what? Now you're going to get hit in the head with a two-by-four, and I'm not going to help because you ignored me. Now, brothers and sisters, can I beg of you, please, when God begins to speak to you about decisions in life, and sometimes when he reproves us, he corrects us, when he counsels us, Pay attention to God. One of the things I've learned in my short life is that God has no agenda but to be good to me. You know, I've just discovered that with God, there is no agenda that he has except to love me and be good for me. And everything he would ever tell me to do is for my benefit. It, it will improve my quality of life because he loves me. Now, if, if you'll just learn that you're not smarter than God, okay, now, now get a hold of this. You know, young people, you ignore your parents because you think you know better than they do. Do you buy? Oh, well, pastor, you know, in their generation, now forget their generation. Young people, you ignore wisdom because you think that you're smarter, and you're not. Christians, we ignore what God says. Because unconsciously, we seem to think that we know better. But we don't. Listen to God. When God corrects you, listen to him. When God counsels you, listen to him. When God reaches out to speak to you, listen to him. He only wants what's best for you. Amen? All right. Let's open up our hearts today. All day long, just be reaching out to him. All day long during lunch break or whenever, we're not allowed to eat with other people these days in our company. So get a little Bible and read it for a few minutes and pray. And we'll see you tonight.